coming up on this week's podcast. So just as in Israel and in, in synagogues, the people wave the palm branches and the lemon and dance around the word of God. Here in heaven, we're dancing around the throne of God. And that John would write, and the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we're not dancing around the written word of God. We're dancing around the living word of God in heaven. Stay tuned for more. And welcome to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a vibrant church committed to biblically-based teaching, often focusing on discovering the Jewish roots of the faith. You can find out more about our church at newhopechapel.org. Now, here's Justin Hibbard with today's message. There are, there are seven Jewish feasts, and we find this one, Sukkot, in the Old Testament as one of the major seven feasts there uh, given to the Jewish people uh, during the time of Moses. And so for seven days, the Jewish people are required to build a sukkah and to dwell and live in the sukkah or the tent or the booth, or sometimes it's referred to as the tabernacle. But actually, the word tabernacle is sort of a misnomer. It shouldn't be called tabernacle. Because when we think of the word tabernacle, we think of the, the place of meeting where the Jewish people worshipped. But this is more of the, the booth when we say tabernacle or booths or tents. This is what we mean. And this is what, this is what Jewish people do. Just like during um, Christmas, we decorate a tree. Here they have an opportunity to decorate a tent and live in a tent for seven days. Sukkot is one of seven Jewish feasts, as I mentioned. We talk about Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot. Rosh Hashanah is the new year. Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement, which we celebrated last week. Actually, Yom Kippur occurred on um, last night. Yesterday was Yom Kippur. So we're a little bit ahead of schedule, but that's okay. And Sukkot is, um, is the week after. And these are considered the high holy days because it's back-to-back-to-back feasts. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. There are three spring feasts which occur together, that is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover, and then the Feast of First Fruits. And then, 50 days after that, is the Feast of Pentecost. So those are the seven Jewish feasts in the calendar, and they all are very significant. And I mentioned a couple weeks ago that I think the reason why God gave them, if I could say, say four reasons, and maybe there's more, of why God gave the Jewish people the, the feasts of Israel, one is to have an opportunity to worship him. Number two is to have an opportunity to come together and to build the community of Israel. Number three is to point to the Messiah. So when the Messiah came, everyone would recognize that this guy is the Messiah because he filled, fulfills the feast. Great job, guys. Excellent job. Let's give him a round of applause. You can have a children's church if you want. I'm going to go to children's church. Just follow. Follow the leader. So the third reason is to is to point to Jesus or to point to the Messiah, so that when the Messiah came, everyone would recognize, "Hey, this is the Messiah." And the fourth reason is. Um, is to point to the end times. And so everyone, I don't say that as a Christian Gentile, I say that for, because the Jewish people believe that as well. That those are four prominent reasons for the Jewish feasts. And, but I believe that Jesus had the opportunity to fulfill all of those, and he did in his time. So what is the festival of Sukkot? Why dwell in tents? 
Well, the story stems back from the time of the Exodus. So recall that Moses led the people out of Egypt, out of slavery, for almost 400 years. The, the Israelites were slaves to the Egyptians. And Moses said, let my people go. They crossed the Red Sea. And then they dwelled in the wilderness for 40 years. Part of that was their fault. They didn't have faith that God would lead them into the promised land. And so their curse was that they would wander and wander and wander. But even though they wandered, even though they were there for a lack of faith, it was really God who provided for them. He gave them tents to live in, which you see surrounding the, um, the tabernacle. That's a pretty picture. And it gives you a... It gives you a um, kind of an idea of just how big Israel was. At the time of crossing the Red Sea, they were about a million or 1.25 million in people. You can imagine no, like nomads sort of wandering through um, the, the wilderness. And, and we read about in the book of Joshua just how scared everyone, everyone was of this nomadic people that were sort of wandering on the other side of the Jordan River. And so this is, so during Sukkot, it's to, remi- it's to remember uh, that they dwelled in those tents that time in Israel. Now, if you think about it, Israel's been around for a long time. And 40 years, celebrating a 40-year period of time, is really not a significant amount of time. And not only that, but I don't think the wandering in the wilderness really paints Israel in a good light. Think of all the sin that went on, the idolatry, the, um, the doubting. Just not a good time in Israel's history. So why is it that God would want... Israel to be reminded of this 40-year period of wandering in the desert? Well, I can think of a couple of reasons. One, maybe it's an object lesson, so that as they're celebrating, hey, we have to remember not to do what our ancestors did and to lose sight of who God is and what he says he can do. Maybe it's, it's more than that. Maybe it's celebrating God's provision because he provided for them manna and, the, and quail, and also not only that, but he provided uh, water, But prominently, he provided his presence, which we see here in the Shekinah glory. That cloud by day and the pillar of fire, which is shown in this picture by night. He gave them his presence. He wandered in the desert with them. He didn't leave them alone. And so Sukkot is a reminder as we go into these tents for seven days to be reminded of God's presence with us. And it's pretty neat, too. I mean, I think of kids and being a kid. Didn't we always build forts and we love to build tents? I come home every day and all of my furniture is rearranged in the house and there's blankets strewn all all over them because the girls love to play in these tents. And they love to do that. And it's just a thrilling excitement. So I imagine for kids, this this has got to be a pretty neat festival. So I thought I'd show some pictures from from, uh, around the world here, mainly New York City. I think, but <laughs> of, of, some, of some celebrations. Check out this. This is like the Sukkah Mobile. And they're all on the back of trucks. So I don't know if you rent a truck or rent a Sukkah or live in a truck for seven days or something like that. Here's a kind of a postmodern Sukkah. And all of the Sukkahs have, they're, they're required to have so many sides to them. And there's, just, there's a whole uh, list of um, prescriptions. Check out this one. All you boaters out there, about put a little sukkah on the back of the boat. And uh, here's another one on wheels, and it's got like a retractable roof. It's, that's pretty nice, you know? You know how we have, I wonder if in Israel, do they have shows like Pent My Sukkah? Like we have. <laughs> but um, also in New York City, uh, as Carl mentioned last week, New York City is number two in the world of Jewish population behind Tel Aviv, which is the capital of Israel. It's amazing to think about that. 
And you said LA is three? Third. So this, this festival happens all over the world, not just in Israel. This is Union uh, Park in New York City. And they have all these different kind of modern takes on sukkahs there, and people kind of walk around. And check out the sukkahs on the high-rises over there. I mean, that's pretty wild, building these tents there. One of the things that they do in building these tents is that they, they put, um, they decorate it with kids' pictures, they decorate it with lots of fruit, and with the palm trees. Because really, it's sort of a celebration of Thanksgiving, just as we celebrate Thanksgiving, and we bring out the food, and, and you know, you have those... Um, kind of centerpieces on the table of, of, the, of the grain and the harvest, so too is Sukkot a celebration, a Thanksgiving festival to God for all that he has provided. Just like he provided that food for them in the wilderness, he provides them this food in their land, in their time. There's a few other components of Sukkot that are very interesting, that have sort of kind of taken, um, that have come about over the, over the centuries, really. One of them is that during their, their worship services and part of um, the liturgical element of Sukkot is that they take a branch, a palm branch, they take a willow branch, another branch, they wrap it together, and they have a lemon or a citrus fruit, fruit which looks a lot like a lemon to us. And what they do is they sing praises like Hosanna, Hoshana, right, which is God save us. And they, they dance around the word of God. So sometimes you'll see in, um, in Jerusalem near the Wailing Wall, Someone will have, will bring out a scroll, and you'll see them all circle around the scroll, singing this praise and kind of, and shaking these leaves and the citrus fruit as they're saying these praises. If they're in a synagogue, what they'll do is they'll dance around where the word of God is read, where the Torah is read there in the front, and they'll sing these praises. Another thing that came about, sort of, it's more an ancient time than today, is that the priest would go down to the pool of Siloam with a gold pitcher. And he would dip that pitcher into the pool, and he'd take the water back up to the Temple Mount, and there's a silver basin right next to the altar. And he would pour the water into the basin. And he would pray for the rains, because he'd praying for the rainy season, for God's provision. But also he would pray for the Holy Spirit, right? That the Holy Spirit would rain down on the people of Israel. Another neat thing that they did in ancient times was that they had these candelabras set up in the area of the temple. So big, so gigantic, and they would light these on fire that it was as bright, I mean, it lit up the entire city of Jerusalem. Josephus, the historian, kind of a contemporary of the first century, he wrote that if you've never seen Sukkot, if you've never seen Jerusalem during the time of Sukkot, you haven't really lived because it's that magnificent. Well, we've been talking about... Um, here, and one of the thing I want to focus on this morning is how is Jesus the fulfillment of Sukkot? A lot of biblical scholars will say that Jesus fulfilled the three spring feasts, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover, which was his death, and he rose on the Feast of First Fruits, and that the Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of Pentecost. But that the time of fulfillment of the fall feast, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, won't be fulfilled until heaven. But I disagree with that. I think Jesus, while, while I agree that there's an element to be fulfilled in the end times, Jesus fulfilled all, excuse me, all seven of these feasts, beginning with Rosh Hashanah. As we mentioned a couple weeks ago, with the, looking at the um, starry night and everything like that, we, we saw that it's quite possible that Jesus was either conceived or born on Rosh Hashanah. 
Yom Kippur, as Carl pointed out, was fulfilled through Jesus' death, his atoning sacrifice, once for all for our sins, and which Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, is very explicit about. But how does he fulfill Sukkot? Well, I'd like us to turn to John chapter 1, if you have your Bibles. Turn with me there. I love the book of John. It is one of my favorite books. I, I love John's writing style. It's very different than the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But I think John is just a master of using Greek language. He is a master of telling us what Jesus is doing in very subtle ways. And this is no, uh, this is no exception. John 1 might be probably some of the best work of literature that is out there. Because he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. By him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him is life, and that life is the light of men. A couple weeks ago I mentioned how that passage quite possibly could be paralleling Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness covered the faces of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. So notice the parallels. In the beginning was the Word. He existed during creation, even before creation. In Him was life. And that life is the light of men. A wonderful parallel there between Genesis chapter 1. But I want to move on to verse 14 there in John chapter 1. Because it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. One of the, do you ever realize how in English we make up words? We do that all the time. How about the word Google. I love how we turn nouns into verbs, and we do this all the time. Like, I Googled it, right? Suddenly becomes a verb. How about, I friended her? Right? We don't say befriend, we, get, we talk about Facebook, we say, I friended her, I friended him. And we do this all the time. Well, John does this. And he does this with a, with a specific word in the Greek, and he's the only one in Scripture to do it with this particular word. And the word is skineo. The word comes from the word tabernacle. And that word he turns into a verb so that it becomes tabernacled. And the way that he uses it here in John chapter 1 verse 14, he says, And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So if you have your Bibles and you see the word dwelt, it, there's a very, I would think that John would not be happy with that translation. Because he's thinking, there's a million words I could have used. I used the word tabernacle. So I don't know, if you're into writing on your Bibles, you may want to write tabernacle above the word dwell. Because it's a very important word. The fact that John uses it tells, should be a clue to us that we ought to key in on something that John is saying. And I think specifically what John is saying, very subtly though, is that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, how is Jesus the fulfillment? Because it's not just good enough to say John thinks Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus has to do something to fulfill it. Well, you may already have some things in mind. For example, you may think of the, the waving of the palm branches and be reminded of when, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem the week right before his death. What were they saying? They were saying, Hosanna, 
God save us. Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're waving praises just as they do during Sukkot. Or how about Jesus' name, Emmanuel? He shall be called Emmanuel, and Emmanuel means God with us. So just as God dwelled with the people in the desert, Jesus dwells in the flesh with the people there in Israel, with the disciples and all of the people during that time. But there's a few other points I want to make. First of all, in John chapter 7, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It's John chapter 7, starting in verse 37. In John chapter 7, we read about Jesus attending the Feast of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. He goes into Jerusalem, kind of secretly, behind his disciples. They don't even know he's there. And he doesn't start teaching until halfway through the, through the week. But in verse 37, we read, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Now let me just paint what's happening here on the last and greatest day of the Feast of Tabernacles. The priest has gone down to the pool with the gold pitcher. He has come up from the pool. He has come up to the, to the altar, to the basin next to the altar. And he begins to pour the water into the basin. And he's praying for the reign of God. He's praying for the Spirit of God. And Jesus cries out in a loud voice and he says, Over here, guys. If anyone is thirsty, come over here and drink. Drink from the living waters. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow within them. He's telling us that he is the fulfillment of this festival. I am the living water that you are praying for. Very much parallels what he said to the woman at the well in Samaria, where he says, if you drink from me, you will never thirst again. He's not talking about physical water. He's talking about a life with him. Turn the page, if you would, to John chapter 8. Because after John chapter 7, it's sort of as talking about the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus makes a venture to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives looks over the city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, which you can kind of see here, although in Jesus' day the Dome of the Rock wasn't there, and someday that Dome of the Rock will not be there. Right? And when God establishes his temple. But he, he's looking over the dome, uh, he's looking over into the temple courts. And what's going on during Sukkot? They have these giant flames. It's dawn. And these, these city lights to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And he says this When Jesus spoke again to the people, in verse 12, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. So right there, there's four clues that Jesus is the fulfillment of Sukkot. The triumphant entry, his name Emmanuel, the, the festival of the, or the, the um, ceremony of the bringing of the water, the drawing of the water, and the temple lights. But there's one other thing that I think John is saying here in John chapter 1. He's giving us a clue. He says... And he tabernacled with us. The word became flesh and tabernacled with us. And we beheld his glory. Now what glory is John referring to? Is the question. Is John talking about uh, Jesus doing miracles? Is he talking about Jesus um, 
in his, in his resurrected body, the one that could walk through walls and yet could be touched, his flesh could be touched and he could eat of the food right in front of them? Is he talking about the ascension where all the disciples stood up and just watched Jesus ascend into the heavens? Or is he talking about something else? I think he's referring to another significant event. One which he and only two other disciples saw. So if you have your Bibles, turn Luke 9. Luke 9. I'm going to look at this story very briefly. In Luke chapter 9. Starting in verse 28, we read this. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with them. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, or the word tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered him, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. This event is known as the Transfiguration of Jesus there on a mountain. And, you know, I, I'm not sure if this occurred during the Feast of Tabernacles. There's good, suggest, there's good evidence to suggest it isn't, simply because they're not in Jerusalem. And Jesus made that trek to Jerusalem, we know of a number of times during the Feast of, Tab- Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles is one of three festivals that are pilgrimage festivals. Sukkot is one, it's Feast of Tabernacles, Passover is another, and Pentecost is another. So this element of traveling to Jerusalem was something that Jewish people did during these three pilgrimage festivals. But here they're on a mountain, and Peter, James, and John, John the writer of the book of John is there. It's interesting, John is the only one that does not record this event in his gospel. But he says, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten. I've got to think that John is he's thinking back here to this moment when Jesus became as bright as lightning. And he said, we beheld that glory. We saw something that nobody else has ever seen. Something so splendid and so awesome. Peter even shouts out, hey, we should build some tents. And it says he doesn't know what he's talking about. Now, maybe that's a criticism of Peter, like Peter was being an idiot. Or maybe Peter said something that he didn't know he was saying that John would later pick up on the fact of this connection between a tabernacle and the Lord's glory. What an amazing event, because, and you think to yourself, well, why in the world? That looks really washed up. Jesus really does look like lightning in that picture. <laughs> um, why, why in the world would, would Elijah and Moses be the ones to join Jesus here? Well, I think it's significant, because if you recall from the life of Moses and the life of Elijah, they had two, one event in each of their lives that was very special. Moses on Mount Sinai said, God, 
I really want to see your face. God says, you can't see my face and live. It'll kill you. But he says, I'll let my glory pass by you. And there was this awesome moment, this interaction between the glory of God and Moses. And Elijah, on the same mount, on Mount Horeb, which many believe is also Mount Sinai, Elijah has that same interaction with God, where God says, I'm going to let my glory pass uh, beside you. And remember, they had the, the earthquake and the thunderstorm and all of that, but it was that whisper. And Elijah had an encounter with God. Here were two men that wanted to see God face to face. Two God, two men that were that were frustrated in their situation. Moses leading people, stiff-necked people. Elijah running from the, the evil Jezebel, running for his life. He was depressed. And here God says, I'll let you see my glory. Isn't it neat that Jesus, the, the word became flesh, the incarnate son of God, standing on the mountain and saying, now you can see my face. Now you can have this moment of interaction with me. And Peter and James and John get to witness this. And then there's this cloud of smoke that everyone's afraid that will envelop them. Might it be the Shekinah glory, the same theophany, the same physical manifestation of the presence of God that dwelled there over the tabernacle during the time of the wandering in the wilderness? There are some really significant Events that are wrapped up here in the transfiguration. And John is so inspired by it. He says, and the word became flesh and tabernacled with us and we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now John is the only one to write this, this verb, to create this verb tabernacled in the scriptures. But he uses it a number of times. A number of times he uses it in the book of Revelation. I want to look at one, specifically Revelation chapter 7. So you can turn with me there. Now, in Revelation chapter 7, it talks about the 144,000 from 12 tribes of Israel. And then, starting in verse 9, it says this. After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude. So this is different. This is an additional multitude besides the 144,000. Which no one could number of all nations, tribes, and peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, saying, Salvation, right, salvation, Hoshana, belongs to our God, who sits upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne, and the elders, and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed with white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, this is John talking, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white. In the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God. And serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore. Nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them. Nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the, of the throne will shepherd them. And lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eye. Do you see the connections there? 
that John writes. You know, I think John, and something I believe about, about the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the writing of Scripture, that John's writing here, and he's writing some awesome stuff, but he's totally inspired by the Lord. And he doesn't even have a clue as to how God is going to fulfill some of these things. And I'm thinking as he's writing John chapter 1, you know, the Holy Spirit's working and saying, John, I can't wait to get you a, a few decades from now writing the, the book of Revelation because you're going to see things and John chapter 1 is going to make a lot more sense to you. And so here John is sitting on the island of Patmos late in his life being exiled and in prison and here he has this vision of Revelation and this is what he sees. And i got to think, he thinks, that I created a word once, a word called tabernacled. And this seems to fit just right because he uses it again right here for the word dwell. He says, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will tabernacle among them. Do you see the connections there? Do you see that here they are with palm branches dancing around the throne of God? So just as in Israel and in in synagogues, the people wave the palm branches and the lemon and dance around the word of God. Here in heaven, we're dancing around the throne of God. And that John would write, And the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we're not dancing around the written word of God. We're dancing around the living word of God in heaven. And then the other thing that he says is that, And he gives them what? He gives them living water. Just like Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are thirsty, And I will give you living water. Living water. Well, what is living water? I think living water is life. Living water is joy. And you think about it, we we do all sorts of stuff in our world to try to get joy. We go to great lengths. We buy things to have that fulfillment in our life whether it's a new car or a new house or those things. And yet when we've, when we've had them, we realize that it, doesn't, it isn't enough. We have to buy more. We work, and we're never satisfied. We work more. We make money, and we're never satisfied. We want more money. So it doesn't seem like those things have that life. Because if they did, they could satisfy us, and somehow they don't. People who make the most money are still some of the most depressed people in the world. So what is living water? What is that thing? Well, it's what Jesus offers us. It's life in Him. We can't get it through buying things. We can't get it through acquiring the things of this world, living like the world does, because at the end of the day, we still are empty. But Jesus says, come to me, you who are thirsty. And if you're thirsty for life, if you're thirsty for righteousness, if you're thirsty for joy, come to me. The life that God offers is the life to live. You know, it's so interesting how people will think of Christian, Christianity and Christians as boring. That seems like a boring life, right? I'm much more into the party scene. I don't feel like, hey, I want to I do things my way. That's boring. I look at that lifestyle that they live and I think, that's chaotic. And you, think of, and you think of the uncertainty of our times. There are people camping out on Wall Street because they're afraid of what the future holds. We don't know, you know what our stocks will do. We don't know what, if we'll have jobs next week. This is scary times. So why do I want that lifestyle? Why do I want 
to live in fear instead of living in the assurance of living hope. I don't know where God will take me in my life. I don't know what things he will ask of me. But all I know is that there is no better place, just as we sang that song, there is no better place than in the presence of God. If you have not made that decision to follow the Lord today, I would encourage you to do it. Because there is no better place. Just taste and see, David writes. Just taste and see that the Lord is good and that he keeps his promises. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. New Hope Chapel is a vibrant ministry in Arnold, Maryland. We are a Christ-centered church with biblically-based teaching focused on the Jewish roots of the faith and committed to helping each person discover and use their spiritual gifts. If you're in the area, we would love for you to come and visit. You can find out more information about our church at newhopechapel.org. Subscribe to the New Hope Chapel podcast on iTunes, and you'll get the next podcast in your sleep. New Hope Chapel.